105 of the 100 monkey fallacy. I'm going to explain it to you again because this week, maybe more than any other week, is dead on point with the whole concept of this series. The 100th monkey fallacy was uh, based on, it was actually based on true research, but they, the person who wrote the, re, the article uh, changed the results, <laughs> so it was false. This was his theory. What happened was that there were some Japanese researchers had uh, been, had taught some monkeys in an island how to wash sweet potatoes to see how the, the learned pattern would progress. And once they taught them slowly, one monkey, it was usually the younger monkeys, would teach other monkeys the same skill. They found that it was a y- useful skill and it would be passed on throughout the monkey community. And as it spread farther, what the, the researcher wrote is that at this mythical figure, the hundredth monkey, and he said, I don't know exactly what number it was, we're going to call it the hundredth monkey. When it reached the hundredth monkey, no longer did any of the monkeys have to teach other monkeys. It simply passed almost genetically, miraculously through the rest of the community and even jumped islands. And the idea of this, people were like, oh my, this is incredible. Ideas, once they hit a certain critical mass, just go without anybody even doing anything anymore, which is, it was false. One, it, it, it sounds crazy because it is. It's not true. It, what happened was there's this hundredth monkey and then there were still a lot of monkeys out there who didn't know yet the skill, who were di- unconnected to that hundredth monkey. Somebody had to teach them. The only way, actually, other monkeys ever learned the skill was that another monkey taught them the skill. It's the core concept of the 100th Monkey series. Impact happens when one person impacts another. Love happens when one person loves another person. When somebody shares skill, knowledge, somebody shares comfort, joy, impact happens. Impact happens one-on-one. Impact happens person-to-person. It can be one-on-five. It can be one-in-group. But impact happens when one person chooses to pass something on to someone else. Last week, as we looked at a passage in a book written by a guy named Paul, who was one of the early founders of the church, and a letter he wrote to a church at Corinth, he said this really simple phrase, for what I received, I passed on to you as of first importance that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures and that he rose from the dead on the third day according to the scriptures. Very simple passage. What I got, what I received, as of first importance, I passed it on to you. His core concept is, I'm going to pass this information on to somebody else because it's really important, and they won't hear it and know it unless I pass it on to them. Which brings up the whole concept of, if you're somebody who's a follower of Christ, it brings up this concept. So if I got something here, really? I have to go tell other people about it? It's one way to look at it. Today I want you to look at it a different way. And to do that, we're going to go back and look at one of my favorite sections of the, uh, of the Bible, which is in the, one of the, the gospel accounts. It's one of the stories of Jesus' life, and it's in the account written by Matthew. And here's the setting. There's a group of religious leaders that want to trip Jesus up. They're trying to trap him. They don't like how much momentum he has and how much influence he's having, and so they're trying to trap him. And so what it says in the 15th verse of that chapter, it says the Pharisees, which are the religious leaders, they, they got together, 
in order to trap Jesus in his words. And so they huddled and they came up with some questions. And the one we're going to look at is the third question they ask him. They ask him two, and one of them was like, okay, so let's say there's somebody who's married and then that spouse dies and married again, then that spouse dies, and it goes on seven times. In heaven, who are they married to? And Jesus is like, seriously? You got your heads together and that's what you got for me? Is that marriage in heaven? He just sort of, yeah, test me, you know. So he comes to the third one. And then after two, and it hasn't gone very well, they huddle again. They're like, okay, we've got to come up with a really good one. One of them goes, I know, I've got it. One of them, an expert in the law, tests him with this question. Teacher, what's the greatest commandment in the law? Now, they are absolutely convinced this is it. You know why? They think it's unanswerable. They think there's no way that Jesus can answer this without getting himself into trouble. It is a big book. And what they asked him is, what's the greatest commandment in the Old Testament? Pick one, Jesus. Which is it? And what they're thinking is, no matter which one he picks, we have a whole bevy of other ones we can hold up and say, seriously, so you don't think this is important? Got him. Unanswerable question. He's going to be stumped. He's either going to babble like a fool because he knows he can't answer it, or he's going to give an answer, and we can trash him with every other possibility. And so Jesus apparently doesn't think it's a hard question because right away he says, oh, I added the O. Jesus replied, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. He says, I I can sum it up. First thing, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, all your mind. Oh, and by the way, there's another one that's like it comes right out of you. You can't, you can't really pull the two apart, and that's this. Second is like it. Love your neighbors yourself. All the law and the prophets hang on these. So what he says is, that's, well, that's easy. Just all the Old Testament hangs on just these two things. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, with all your whole soul, with all your mind. Jesus says the first thing is, I want you to love the Lord your God with all of your heart and all of your soul and all of your mind. Emphasizes it three different times. And the, and the word there is really a word that means whole. It's not all like, and you know, everybody. It's whole. He says the first and greatest commandment is that you would love the Lord your God with the whole of your mind and your heart and your soul, with the whole of you not in parts, not divided. And in this, he comes to this critical teaching, which is that, seriously, you thought what I was going to do is I was going to have to pick between a list of do's and don'ts and determine which actions were the most important? That's not the point at all. The point of the whole shebang is a wholehearted relationship with God is that you would live in a relationship that is not defined by whether I acted well at this moment or that moment, whether I followed this command or that command, but whether the whole of me was connected with the whole of God. Because the point of the Bible is all of God loves you. Doesn't love you in compartments. Doesn't love you in moments. The whole of God's heart is for you. And the call for our life is that the whole of our heart will be connected to him. It's not an action. It's a relationship that defines every other action and every other worldview. He said, that's easy. That's the first and the greatest commandment. 
Oh, but there is a second one that's like it. Similar. Of the same kind, of the same nature, inextricably bound to it. This one's like that one. And that one is, love your neighbor as yourself. Now, what I find interesting in this is when he says it's like it, it's of the same nature, and yet what he says about it is, I'm going to describe it differently, though. It's like it, and yet I'm not telling you to love your neighbor with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind, because quite honestly, that's both impossible and silly. Jesus has defined neighbor elsewhere as anybody who's in need. And so he's not saying, I want you to live this devoted, intimately connected life to anybody you happen to stumble across. That's goofy. It's like I was listening to a talk once where somebody looked out at the audience and says, he didn't know a soul in the audience and said, I want you to know this first of all, I love you. And I'm thinking, okay, you're going to have to define that for me a little bit. Because <laughs> if you mean we have a deep abiding intimate relationship, I'm not buying it because I don't know who you are. Jesus does not call us to goofy sorts of loves. I want you to live in this intimate relationship with everybody. He doesn't say all your heart, all your soul, all your mind. He says, let me describe for you if you and God are connected, if you are living centered on a relationship with God, that's all of you connected with all of Him, you'll love your neighbor as yourself. Let me describe for you what I mean by love your neighbor as yourself. What do you want? Good, good. That's what your neighbor wants. He gets so intensely practical. I love this. He doesn't use some goofy language about, oh, you need to, to love them with, you know, all, all of your passion and you need to, you know, commit and self-sacrifice because he knows that, that we would all define that into oblivion or just give up. He said, oh, it's really easy. You want to love your neighbor? This is what you do. What do you want? That's what they want too. If you experience joy, happiness, peace, wholeness, that's what they want. We are, we are at core, very similar entities who long for and fear similar things, who have hopes and dreams. What you want is a very, very good barometer, big picture of what your neighbor wants. And so Jesus says, this is it. Everything else in here is a commentary. You, in a whole relationship with God, looking around at the world and very simply saying, what do I want? That's what I want. That's what they want too. Let me live in such a way that what changes my life, I can pass on. Back to the 100th monkey. You see, at core of this concept is, Paul says, what I received I passed on to is of first importance that Jesus died for your sins and was raised from the dead. Paul said, that's the first thing. I have a relationship with God now that gives me a whole life. And so he said, I think that's what other people are going to want too. Because look at what it's done for me. And so as of first importance, I'll pass that on. Impact happens when one person affects another person's life. Here's the myth. We live in 21st century America. In fact, in the Southeast, even in Charlotte, 
We are in the buckle of the Bible belt right here. As I said, first service, we're also apparently in the buckle of the NASCAR belt, which disturbs me just a little bit, but we're in the buckle of the Bible belt, which actually disturbs, disturbs me a little bit too, but for entirely different reasons. So we're in the buckle of the Bible belt. What does that mean? That means there are churches everywhere. Seriously, and they keep starting. And I'm not saying that's a bad thing. I'm just saying there's a lot of churches. And you can look around and go, there's over 700 churches in Charlotte, and we keep putting them in. I think that might be more than there are McDonald's. And McDonald's has over a billion served. And so we got churches everywhere. And not just that. We got Christian schools. And my wife and I were talking about last week, and like, hey, there are not many Christian schools. And then we started to go, oh, wait. There's First Assembly. There's Hickory. There was on and on. And there's lots of them. And then there's Christian radio. If you didn't know that, it's good. <laughs> Sometimes ignorance is bliss. There's Christian TV. There's Christian books. There's Christian bookstores. Maybe all of that is in fact the hundredth monkey. Seriously, there's so much going on here. What do I have to do anymore? We've got a machine going on here. Down here in Charlotte, there's no longer the need for one person to pass on to the other. See, that's the myth. There's no hundredth monkey. Impact happens when one person tells someone else. The fictitious hundredth monkey, the other monkeys, he was not c connected to. He had no influence on whatsoever. You have influence on who you're connected to. What that means is right now in your life, there are people who are connected to you. And simple truth, they will hear a message about Jesus that could change their life. Wait for it. When you tell them. I know. And you're going, you mean I have to word, use the word like Jesus in public? You ever notice that? You can say Christ and it sounds okay. But walk up to somebody and say, I'm going to talk to you about Jesus. And already it feels a little uncomfortable. Now see, I know this is kind of logical at this point. All right, so. If I'm a Christian, which means I'm a follower of Jesus, which means I believe he died for me and I believe that changed something about my life, then I, I believe that's good for other people and impact really only happens when I tell, so I probably should tell them. It's not about logic. Here's what it's about. Paul says, I passed on to you of first importance. I can say really without any, any fear of contradiction. The most important thing in my life, the most important thing that's ever happened to me was that God loved me, pursued me, sent his son to die for me, and in space and time, I asked him to forgive me and come into my life. That, really, I, I package it all up. That's the most important thing that's ever happened for me. 
Whether or not I live consistently with that is a whole different question. But if I pull back and look at my life, there really isn't any debate. That is, that's the most important thing that's ever happened in my life. And nothing will ever eclipse it because it gave me things I could not have otherwise. I believe the whole of me, the whole of you, was created for God. There was no way for me to get back into a relationship with God other than the death of Jesus on my behalf. I believe he brought me to himself and he offers me hope that's found in his trajectory for my life. He offers me forgiveness that I can't get anywhere else because he is really the one that I've offended. He offers me eternity in his presence. He gives me all that is the singular, most important, most defining reality of my life, period. And so I ask myself this question. If that is the singular, most defining point of my life, and I love my friends, which means what I want, they want, then if my conversations are dominated and never allow a moment of the singular, most important facet of my life to enter into that, that's where it gets odd. When I think about it that way, it's not, the odd thing is not that I would talk about Jesus. The odd thing is, why does that not come up more often? And again, you go, okay, that makes sense. That's true. But there's another thing that holds us back. They're fine. Really. Who am I? I mean, yes, this has worked for me, but they're fine. Like the Wilco, Wilco song, I'll just smile. They're smiling. They're happy. Right? They're successful. Got a good life. They're fine. I will say as carefully as I can say this. Nobody is fine if they don't have a relationship with Jesus. I know. That sounds crazy. Sounds very exclusive. Why would I say that's true? Not because people don't have good things going in their life, but if the whole point the whole point of our existence is to be connected with God and to experience a relationship with Him. And if we believe that Jesus is the one who did that, who gave us that, then nobody's fine if they don't have that because that is at the core of who they were supposed to be. Created to be a child of God, created to be loved, created to be intimately connected with Him, and created to live eternally in His presence. If they don't have that, they may have lots of good things, but how can I define that as fine. I mean, gee, when I became a Christian, I almost swore. When I became a Christian, I was fine-ish as far as anybody knew. I was smiling and pretending. Everything looked really good in the surface. See, what you think is, okay, my friends have to be groveling in the dirt, their life destroyed, and then I can say, well, they're probably bad enough off that they let me talk to him about Jesus. I wasn't fine. 
how could I be? I was made for God, and he for me. Your friends, your neighbors, your associates, your family, your parents, your mom and dad were made for God. Heart and soul, body and mind, all. And there's no hundredth monkey. There's you and me, day by day, making a decision, will I love other people? See, a, a homeless family isn't homeless when someone takes them in. The child who doesn't believe anybody cares about them gets changed when somebody cares about them. A person who doesn't know that there's a God in the universe who loves them so much he would die to bring them life again does not know that unless somebody loves them enough to tell them. Christianity is incredibly simple. If you, are not, if you are somebody who comes today and you go, I don't even know if I believe in anything, much less God, this is what I want you to know. The whole point of Christianity, this whole, this whole book here, was designed to show you this, whole. You can have a whole relationship with God. You were made for Him. He's calling you to Himself. He does not want to give you a set, of, a list of duties that you're supposed to start accomplishing to be a relatively decent person. He wants to give you Himself and you Him heart, body, mind, and soul. And so you live connected to the one you were always made for. That's what he wants for you. It's what he calls you into. If I didn't tell you that, I wouldn't be being nice. I wouldn't be being kind. Because it's the singular, most defining need of each and every human being. Today, if you're somebody who is a follower of Christ, I want you to let both parts of what Jesus says, sink in. You are not called to or defined by your actions. You are called to a whole relationship with God. He wants you to experience a sense of centeredness and depth and abiding love in his presence. And the things that you do, whether you're reading your Bible, whether you're praying, whether you're conversing with friends about spiritual matters, let them focus on that. Am I experiencing my whole heart in connection with God? That is the point. It's where the joy and the power and the peace comes from. And then flowing out of that, pose the question to yourself. This, when I experience the times in my relationship with God, which are so infusing and so powerful, I want more of that. That's what my friends would want too. Let me love them by beginning in small and simple ways to impart my life to them. Impact happens when one person shares with another. Let's pray. Lord, would you impact us today with your presence? We would pray for you to speak into each of our lives. I pray for those who are in relationship with you that you would show them, clear away the clutter and Make obvious the simplicity of your calling for us to live connected with you, to experience love, to love you, to remain in you. And Lord, I pray you would open our eyes and help us to look around at the world of people and to do some hardcore caring. Caring about people enough to speak into their lives, to encourage and challenge and to open up the vista, the possibility that they could have a relationship with you, the God who loves them and died for them. 
We pray all this in Christ's name. Amen. As we go into this time of response, we begin it with our offering. If you're new to Warehouse, the reason why we do this is it frames this part of our service. We remind ourselves that our life is lived in response to the love of God. And so as He is given into our lives, we long to give back in order to bring impact to the world.